Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. If you're new here, well, welcome for the first time. And thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending me your ears. And the only non-renewable resource you've got, that of course is your time. Today's entrepreneur and guide is someone who I've recently gotten to know, but who has a tremendous amount of experience in the energy sector. Arshad Mansoor is EPRI's President and Chief Executive Officer. Not familiar with EPRI? Well, EPRI, founded in 1972, is an independent nonprofit energy research development and deployment organization with three specialized labs and a ton of research, and as you'll hear today, statistics and insights into how we can ensure that the public has clean, safe, reliable, affordable, and equitable access to electricity around the globe. As I mentioned, Arshad is the president and chief executive officer. He's actually been at EPRI since 1999. He has directed their energy and efficiency initiative and been involved in launching their integrated grid initiative. Arshad's fingerprint, suffice to say, is all over EPRI, and he is a tremendous asset to the organization and to our industry. I got a chance to sit down with Arshad very recently at the University of North Carolina Clean Tech Summit. If you listened last week, we debuted an interview I had with the CEO of Dominion, Bob Blue. Arshad's interview was at the same event, and I will give you the same treatment. The first 10 minutes is me sitting down with Arshad before he gets a chance to go on stage and give his keynote address, one that is pretty interesting and riveting insight into how we get to net zero energy future. So the first 10 minutes, of course, is my conversation with Arshad and the last 40 or so minutes is Arshad's address to the attendees of the UNC Clean Tech Summit. It really was a fascinating conversation, not only that I had with Arshad, but I listened to while he wowed the crowd with his insights from the many, many areas that EPRI is doing research into our net zero energy future. So I won't keep you any longer, but I will remind you that If you haven't already, you can go check out our more than 590 episodes now of our back catalog of conversations just like this, deep dives with industry leaders like Arshad over at mysuncast.com. And oh, by the way, if you missed the recent launch of our newest podcast, you can check that out. It's called Climate Avengers over at our network, resourcelabs.co resourcelabs.co is the home of our podcast network and our newest podcast climate avengers please go check that out when you have a moment to do so for now get ready to tune up your skills solar warrior 
as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Hi, this is Nico Johnson. Welcome back to the Suncast Media Zone live at the UNC Clean Tech Summit. I'm joined by the president and CEO of EPRI, Arshad Mansoor. Arshad, good to see you. Good seeing you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's an incredible environment here at the University of North Carolina this week. And I see as you're walking around, lots of folks are greeting you. You've got, you're well recognized in many circles. Yet, I'm sure many of our viewers are unclear exactly who or what EPRI is. They've probably consumed one of your many reports and benefited from the wonderful research that you do. But could you just unpack a bit how EPRI serves the marketplace? Oh, absolutely. And before that, I have strong connection with the Tar Heel Nation. One daughter yes. already graduated, and the other daughter is a sophomore. So strong go. tie in this <laughs> region. EPRI, so we shape the future of clean energy. And we've been doing that for 50 years as a nonprofit focused on societal good. And how do we do that? We do that by working with National Labs, Department of Energy, California Energy Commission, NYSERDA, but more importantly with 450 energy companies across 40 countries. Wow. And what role do we play? We really have two major roles. The one role is make sure that the existing infrastructure, transmission, distribution, nuclear plants, wind plants, solar plants, we are continuing to operate it very reliably, affordably, and in a clean way. Mm. That's a lot of the, what I would call the engineering work. Mm -hmm. If you have a nuclear power plant that wants to go from a 40-year to 60-year licensing, or a 60 to 80-year licensing, they actually follow a tremendous amount of knowledge that we have put together on how do you qualify everything in a nuclear power plant so you can go from 40 to 60 years. That's one part. The other part of EPRI is what we call we are driving with our headlights on high beam. Yeah. We are looking across the horizon. So this clean energy transition, how do we make this transition affordably, reliably, safely, and equitably? So that's another role we play. And the biggest role that we play in this second half is we want to make sure that the thousands of technologies that are coming out from startup companies, manufacturers, universities, how do we take it and accelerate it so it can be deployed in the electric sector. So we are more on TRL 789. We are more at the edge where technology is coming up. As an yeah. organization with $460 million research budget, we do not develop our own technology. Yeah. We rely on the market. Yeah, it's so fun to hear you say thing, acronyms that many may not be familiar with, like TRL, technology readiness level. If you, you need, that needs no explanation if you're actually in the process of building technology. EPRI, works with, you said, with more than 400 companies and in more than a dozen countries. 40 countries. <laughs> and specifically, one of the things that I've noticed with EPRI over the last two years for sure is a focus on resiliency. Can you talk about the core need for that focus on resiliency as it pertains to the clean energy transition? Oh, absolutely. And resiliency, from a simple point of view, my light should be on during Christmas Eve or my <laughs> light should be on the coldest day yeah. or the hottest day. Mm. We feel resiliency is the tip of the spear to get to decarbonization. Mm -hmm. As we get to decarbonization, clean energy future will be changing our resource mix. As we get to the clean energy future of the next 10, 20, 30 years, however fast we want to go, reliably and affordably, the climate is already changing. So now we need to be resilient to a climate of the future. We need to be resilient to a 
power system that will look very different. Mm -hmm. And we need to meet the expectation of resiliency of customers because in 2040, not just 20% of the energy that we use is electricity. It could be 40% of the energy that we use electricity. Mm -hmm. So my expectation on how long I need power to stay on and power not turning off could be very different in 2040. So all these three aspects, changing power system, we're looking at weather changing, mm -hmm. and we're looking at customer expectation for a resilient electricity grid changing, really puts a focus on resiliency as equal of a objective for us as a clean energy future. Yeah. When we think about resiliency, there are many things that are going well. Microgrid was once a cottage industry. It is now flourishing. Storage was you know, where solar was 10, 15 years ago. We now see it's kind of on that upward swing. But we need a plethora of things to work well and together for there to be real resiliency as we move away, as we try to find renewable power methods for baseload power, as an example. From the perspective of, of EPRI, what keeps you up at night in that regard? Like where, where we, everyone has said, it's kind of easy to get to 70, 80%. That last 20% is the real crunch point. So what keeps you up at night? Well, I, I think what keeps me awake is the opportunity that we have. Mm. The opportunity for enhancing resiliency on two sides. Okay. One on the infrastructure side. Yeah. That's just not transmission distribution, but also on the generation energy storage side. But other is customer side. Customer resiliency is not whether the light went off because do they have heat? Yeah. Do they have cold? So yeah. let's go to the first part on the TND side. Well, clearly undergrounding, look at what Florida has done and look at what the impact of hurricane in Florida is right now. Right. Look at what happened in Austin in Michigan just last month on ice storm, yeah. tree falling. Trees will fall on ice. So undergrounding and infrastructure resiliency will be a key effort. Yeah. On the resource side, Today, we have almost 200 gigawatt out of a 1,000 gigawatt system in the U.S. that is mm -hmm. wind and solar. Yeah. All projection is by the 2030, we may have 600, 700 gigawatt. When you have that much variable generation, there will be periods of hours, 20 hours, two days, where we will be short on generation because yeah. the weather pattern mm -hmm. will be different. And that's when, yes, batteries will play a role, but batteries grid scale utility batteries are playing a role today, but two to four hours. Yeah, sure. They can go to six hours, mm -hmm. they can go to eight hours, but we need 16 hours, we need 24 hours. So long duration energy storage, LDES, mm. is going to be a key for resiliency from the resource side. And I know you're speaking with the Julia Souter, yeah, my good Julia. friend and CEO of LDES Council. And I think Julia will give you more insights on how the industry is coming together yeah. through the MOU with Department of Energy and EEI mm -hmm. to advance this technology. But Fantastic. these are all infrastructure side. Yeah. If you just focus on that, we have missed the boat on yeah. resilience. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the customer side. Let me give you two examples. More than half of households in the United States have gas furnace. Yeah. In the coldest day when your power goes out, you would expect the gas furnace to continue to heat your house because it uses gas and gas there was no gas outage. Yeah. Today you cannot do that because the gas furnace uses a small fan and a small amount of electricity. Sure. Why can't we design the gas furnace so there is a battery backup, small battery backup for sure. six hours? Let me give you another example. Millions of rooftop solar in the United States. Millions, and it's mm -hmm. increasing. What happens if the power goes out, but the sun is still shining, yeah, they're and you island to charge your battery? You can't, you <laughs> yeah. cannot island 99.9%. .9%. <laughs> 
they don't provide even one watt of power. Yeah. Why? Because we are not using grid tied inverter. That's right. Why not? Well, because we're not using battery backup inverters. Right? Well, you could do without battery backup, just have a grid tied inverter mm -hmm. and what we call opportunity power, yeah. which is get some outlets when the sun is shining. Sure. You charge your phone, charge your laptop, yep. maybe power oh, your refrigerator. Right. Mm -hmm. The ability to re-divert on an internal circuit. Yep. yep. We give another example of why customer resilience is so important. Yes, we need to put utility scale battery, 10 megawatt, 100 megawatt. Yeah. But why not put a battery for eight hours on every major traffic light intersection? Yeah. Because when a hurricane and a storm happens, one of the injury and fatality is you don't have enough police to man the intersections because the power is out. Yeah. So we have to think about resiliency, not just infrastructure hardening, yeah. which may be 80, 90% of what we need to do, but enable the consumers, the customers with yeah. PV, with gas furnace, right. traffic light with batteries to be more resilient. You mentioned something that I know is a, a hot topic in particular around how do we help folks where they are hardening that infrastructure actually feel prepared? There's an area around resiliency from a technology perspective, and then we bring in that human element. You've sort of reconstructed a framework and even a, an English word around this concept of climate ready. Can we end on what is climate ready and how does it serve to further this, uh, con the, the conversation around energy transition and resiliency? I think globally that is the most important initiative that is going on that started last year. It's a three-year initiative, the global audience. I would uh, urge the viewers to go to climate ready. Just go to Google or Bing and type climate ready, but type it ready with an I, not ready with a Y. And what this effort is, is to bring in NOAA. Mm -hmm. They are the weather experts. Yes. Bring in NERC, they're the grid reliability experts. Mm -hmm. Bring in DOE and the national labs. They're really what our crown jewel of science is. Mm -hmm. And bring in all the energy companies and make a fundamental change of, we cannot just have a storm and then look at resiliency. We have to predict what the weather of 2030, 2040 could be on any region. And before we wait for the storm, we need to start becoming resilient now. And to do that, we need a consistent, transparent, and a very detailed methodology. Yeah. It could be a 20 volume book. You know, we are known for producing reports. Yeah. But it needs to be done not just by a few. It needs to be done by NOAA and NARC. So we have put yeah. together the coalition of almost 45 stakeholders and 40 energy companies. Yeah. And our goal is, this will produce a document, a reference, a guideline based on science, based on engineering, based on transparency, so that we can start preparing for the future now because even if we accelerate decarbonization and we achieve net zero by 2050, mm -hmm. the climate has changed and we are seeing the change in weather. And in addition to decarbonization, we got to be ready for the weather of the future. That's what climate ready is all about. Preparedness in all ways, and especially for our extreme weather conditions, those that are affecting you and I and our families, is what EPRI is helping not only uh, transform and prepare us all for, but evolve as this technology, the, the solutions and technology comes online. Arshad, it's really we could go so long on each one of these different uh, points. It's an honor to get a chance to sit down with you. I hope we get a chance to do it 
at a greater length in the future. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me and go Tar Heels next March Madness. Next, next time. Pleasure. This has been another episode of the Suncast Media Zone. We're live at the UNC Cleantech Summit. Thank you to our sponsors. Thanks to Strata and thanks to the University of North Carolina for inviting us. I'll see you on the next one. All right, as promised, we're now going to transition over to Arshad's keynote address at the morning session of the UNC Cleantech Summit. Arshad, take it away. Before we go into a climate-ready power system and kind of unpack what it means, I want to make sure that I'm clear about what my main objective is to be here today, is to interact with you. But my number one objective that my company gave me was, Rashad, make sure you recruit. So I'm here for recruiting. We don't have a booth outside there. And if you want to know what EPRI is, I'll say, go on your phone and type EPRI.com. We are a global organization. Our motto is we shape the future of clean energy. We do that working with more than 400 energy companies across 40 countries, but also working closely with the Department of Energy National Labs, with universities, and really bringing the talent together, not for early stage research, that's done in national lab startup companies, but how technologies can be deployed at scale in utility. That's what we do. We do in all aspects of the way I say, the way you make, move, and use electricity. We do it in all aspects of environmental science related to energy. We do it in all aspects of economics and policy as it relates to electricity and now the energy system. Almost 1,400 staff worldwide, but we work with so many experts, especially the industry experts, more than 2,000 industry experts that engages with us. So take a look at us, go to our website, take a look at what we do, make sure you send me the resume or go and look at what job openings and internship openings we have. Take a look at them, connect me in LinkedIn. And this is a great place to uh, bring the next talents of EPRI. So with that, my sale job done, let's now focus on climate ready power system. And I would be interactive, this is small enough, the sound is good, I'll be asking questions. So I want you to shout out some of the answers. And then if you have time, we have some mics and would love to get some questions from all of you. So I'm going to talk about a global perspective, but start with the U.S. perspective. So what is our net zero by 2050 means? What does it mean emissions coming from the way we produce electricity, the way we drive our car, the way we heat our home? What is the near-term target? 2030 is near-term, only, I don't know, seven and a half years left. So what is our near-term target? What do we need to do? What are the key imperatives for meeting that near-term target? And what do we need to do to get ready for the 2050 net zero? So that's kind of like an overall a climate-ready power system engagement is. I'm gonna start with the video. The video is about US and what our trajectory is and what the goal the current administration has set to reduce emission in the 2030 timeframe. So shout out a number compared to 2005, whatever the US emission was, how much reduction has the current administration targeted and announced it at the Glasgow UN COP summit? What percent reduction? Shout out a number. There's no wrong answer. 80%. Anybody else? 20. 50 to 52. So you take 80 and 20 divided by two, you're getting close. That's our 2030 goal. And everybody's goal is net zero 2050. But important to look at 2030 goal because most of us, hopefully even Terry, you and I will be there in 2030. 
2050, it's you guys going to figure it out, the net zero piece. So you look at both sides of the equation, and let's take a look at what the U.S. reducing it to 30, 50 to 52% compared to 2005 level. What does that mean? I'm going to play a short video. The Electric Power Research Institute is examining the pace of U.S. carbon emission reduction based on the goal of cutting economy-wide emissions in half by 2030. Across the U.S. economy, annual energy-related carbon emissions declined one gigaton between 2005 and 2020, driving CO2 about 50% below 2005 levels by 2030 means tripling the rate of decarbonizing ocean, accelerating from a one gigaton reduction over 15 years to one gigaton every five years. Additional reductions are expected in the decades ahead as the U.S. targets net zero emissions economy-wide by 2050. Between 2005 and 2020, the power sector reduced its carbon emissions by 35%, driven by end-use efficiency gains, coupled with natural gas and renewables replacing coal. The electric sector reductions will need to accelerate over the coming decade to achieve a three-times increase in the economy-wide pace. With high solar and wind penetration and advanced low-carbon technologies emerging, achieving net-zero power sector emissions will take time and involve substantial technology innovation to make the transition affordable and reliable. The transportation, buildings, and industry sectors achieved relatively small carbon reductions between 2005 and 2020. These sectors will have to substantially accelerate reductions to meet 2030 goals. Electrification will play a central role in the decades ahead. Transportation, buildings, and industry are expected to continue reducing emissions, powered by electrification, low-carbon fuels, and carbon capture and storage. The development of negative emission technologies will benefit all sectors. The power sector is poised to play a crucial role in realizing the U.S. carbon goals in the coming decades through direct emission reductions and by enabling reductions in transportation, buildings, and industry. As we decarbonize and further electrify the transportation and building sectors, we simultaneously need to ensure the electric grid can withstand the changing weather and climate of today and tomorrow. Adapting the grid and proactively planning upgrades to handle extreme weather require evaluating trends in future climate projections, assessing grid vulnerabilities, and investing in robust risk mitigation options that account for regional differences. Maintaining and improving resilience will be a critical part of the decarbonization journey as we seek to build a clean, affordable, safe, and reliable energy future. Before I go to the next slide, let me ask another question. So you heard about three sectors that contribute to U.S. emission. Electricity sector, the way we produce electricity. Transportation, the way you drive your car, fly the plane. And buildings and industry. So let's take the buildings and industry and transportation, those two sectors. Let's say overall U.S. emission is 100. How much are these two sectors contributing to that 100? Shout out a number. Well, the knowledgeable people are here. Yes, Terry, 60, 62%. But we all gravitate towards the power sector. I'm going to make electricity clean. Yes, you have to make electricity clean. But just by making electricity clean, all you're doing, you're reducing one third of the emission. So it's good to see that the other sectors, especially transportation sector, has started the journey. 
But to get to 50% emission, 50% reduction, the video was done in 2020, 2021, and it says 3x means we got to accelerate in the next seven and you know next 10 years at a 3x pace than what we have done in the past. Well, two and a half years have already gone by. Guess what that 3x is today? It's 4x. That's what we got to do. Four times the speed of decarbonization. So I'm going to now share some global perspective because 100 countries came to Glasgow at the UN Climate Summit and set up 2030 goals. 100 countries, not just US. So one of the questions I asked, I had the opportunity, you heard a term yesterday when Terry was being introduced, CIGRE, C-I-G-R-E. And you can Google what it is. It's the largest global power systems expertise. They came last year in Paris. I had the pleasure and the honor to do the keynote. And I had Slido and I asked them a global perspective. So one of the first questions I asked them was, well, all of you have set up, all your countries have set up 2030 goals. How confident are you that your country will meet that goal? And I want you to think how confident you are. And I'm going to show you what, then. this is almost 3,000 people, slightly bigger audience. So it's 3,000 people of global experts. And that's where they came. That's actually where I would have come. You always have to be optimistic. You shouldn't say Mission Impossible. Even Mission Impossible, if you have seen the movie, becomes possible. But this is what the global community says. And if you look at, go back to the U.S. perspective, you heard yesterday at the keynote, Bob mentioned about good versus good. So here is what U.S. needs to do just on the electricity sector to meet the goal. You see all those bars? Yellows are solar. Then you got wind. That's the amount of build-out. That's the amount of wind and solar we got to build out in the next eight years. Look at what we have done in the past, since 1950. So that's not going to be easy. And to build that out, we also need to build transmission. And that's where the tale of good versus good comes. We have to go by all the environmental criteria. We have to do a due diligence on environmental analysis. There is no other way to do it. But we got to make sure we do it in a finite time. And we have a clear process. And that's really the, one of the biggest challenges that we see is the good versus good, which good will dominate. There's another question we asked, and that was about from the U.S. side, if somebody asks Ashad, what will it take to get us to 2030? So I said four tools in the toolbox. Two of the tools we have been using for last decades, energy efficiency, clean electricity. We've got to continue to do the clean electricity. It's not done. What we need to start using this decade is electrification. That's another tool in the toolbox that needs to come in. And then the tool that needs to come in beyond 2030 is low carbon resources. Because without low carbon resources, you will not be able to get to net zero economy-wide. Are you going to produce steel? Are you going to produce plastics? What will the industries use? That's where low carbon fuels comes in. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. You know, when you partner with our partner, Trina Solar US, 
You get more than best-in-class Vertex modules. You also gain a bankable partner for optimized compatibility and improved system value. With the Trina Pro Utility Scale Solution, or C&I Solutions, Trina Solar is the only PV module manufacturer in the United States that offers one-stop system integration solutions, including Trina Tracker, inverters, and full BOS support to lower your levelized cost of electricity. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Hey, can I borrow your attention for just one minute? How many of you in the residential solar install game right now would really say that your workflow is built to win? You know, in the 2010s, solar was all about sales. I think that the winners of the 2020s is really going to be contractors that focus on operational efficiency. See, margins are getting squeezed and there's a ton of competition out there, but everyone has an opportunity to improve. Would you like to know the score of the value of your survey and design process? Would you like to hear about the evolution of the installer workflow? Well, then I would encourage you to join myself and my friend Jason Steinberg from Scanifly next Wednesday, the 31st of May at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Or maybe it's this Wednesday, or maybe you already missed it and you need to go see the replay at any point. You are going to benefit from the insights that we're going to reveal the benefits of a tech-driven solar ops program, the transition from manual to digital surveys. It's all there. I hope that you will check in, tune in, register, and uh, throw us some hard questions. We always love it in our live broadcasts. Join us May 31st, 2 p.m. with Scanifly. See you there. So to get this 2030 piece, we need a grid that's ready for renewables. So give you some data on renewables. We have roughly 200 gigawatt of wind and solar in U.S., large number of gigawatt. Our total capacity in U.S., 1,100 gigawatt. Natural gas, hydro, nuclear, big part. Every estimate that has been done, looking at what's happening with solar and wind, we will have 600 to 700 gigawatt by 2030. At that significant level of penetration, there will be days and weeks where we will have so much energy, electricity coming from renewables that we'll have to figure out what to do with it. And there will be days and weeks where there will be so little energy coming from renewables, we need to figure out what to do with that as well. And that's where Terry's storage is uh, the friend of wind and solar and solar as well comes in. That's where you heard Anna from DOE talking about LDES, long duration energy storage. You can't just do lithium ion and get to 16 hours. You can do lithium ion battery packs. Last year, we did five gigawatt of utility scale. And that will give you two hour, four hour, six hour flexibility. You need 16 hours, 20 hours. Take a look at all the technologies. There's maybe 50 startup companies looking at gravitational, thermal, chemical, long duration energy storage. Because that's going to make the grid ready for renewables. The grid has to be ready for EVs as well. Let me throw out another question. What percent of new car sales in 2022 in the United States was EV? Throw out a number. 736, 7 is the right answer. 7 seems, yeah, that's not much. Two years ago, 2021, 2020, it was 2%. So EVs are happening. It's coming. The cost is going to come down. Your gasoline bill that you pay for your car is going to come down. Your maintenance, I have an EV for two and a half years. 
maintenance, amazing. Your brake shoes, you don't change for five, 10 years. So EV is the one thing that in this clean energy transition will actually reduce your energy bill that you pay every month. It will reduce the maintenance costs that you pay for owning a car for 10 years. It's still expensive. Wait two, three years. I know the government is working right now, the IRS, on how the $7,500 tax credit will be rolled out. That's a lot of money coming out. And you have Ford and other companies, not just Tesla, trying to come up with a $25,000 EV. But the grid needs to be ready for that. A UPS, if you go to a FedEx bus depot, if you go to a UPS where all the UPS trucks are, they all have come up with a plan for decarbonization. Well, take that bus depot, school bus depot, where there are 50 school buses, and you're going to charge them with big charger. You need like 20 megawatt to be supplied right there. So we have programs underway at EPRI to bring the automotive sector so they can talk about what their plan is and bring more than 1,000 utilities in the United States that, hey, this is what they want to do. Now you got to get ready in the next 10 years to have that power ready for them. And it's not just about building transmission distribution. EVs are one of the best resources that we will have. School buses, when the school children are not using that bus, what is the bus doing? It's sitting somewhere parked. It's a big battery there. I don't know what the size of the battery is. I'll say 300 kilowatt size battery. Take thousands of school buses, thousands of UPS fleets, thousands of FedEx fleets, your car. That will be also how the grid becomes ready for EVs and renewables, not just by building infrastructure. So question I asked the global audience was, of all the technologies, what is the number one technology that you think we will have to focus on to get the grid ready for EV and renewables? And these are 3,000 power system experts. That answer was not my answer, so I'm going to tell you what their answer was. Surprised me. But now thinking back doesn't surprise me. So their answer was development and deployment of long-duration storage. So this was eye-opening. This was eye-opening to see a group of 3,000 experts who knows this business are giving long-duration energy storage. My answer was this. My answer was what you heard from Jeff, that if we provide customers with smart thermostats, if you provide customers for smart water heaters, if your EV charge is done in a way so that you're not charging for the three hours when the grid is stressed. So we call it an integrated grid, a grid that brings in thermostats and chargers and water heaters and aggregates them at a, as a virtual power plant. So my answer was, we got to get this done. The good thing is we got to get everything done, but I do agree, long duration storage. Because you can't go to 600, 700 gigawatt of wind and solar in an 1,100 gigawatt system because there will be days, not hours, you will be short on power. You'll not have the energy to keep the lights on. Ask another question to them. Of all the things, is it technology innovation? Is it policy regulatory innovation? Is it market structure? Because we hear a lot about market, and I can go on hours on markets. That's not the purpose now. I wasn't surprised with that. And you heard yesterday, the good versus good. In order for us to get at this speed to decarbonize, licensing, permitting, environmental, all those needs to be done, but they have to be streamlined. If it takes 15 years to build a transmission line, how are you going to install that much wind and that much solar? So that wasn't surprising. But markets 
you know, the way markets, it's hard to explain to markets. It's a pretty dense subject. It's economics, though, not engineering. But markets is how we work. All the big generators, they sell their energy to a market. You get charged when you use electricity in your home. We call it retail and wholesale. Wholesale is somebody buying power from big generators. Retail is somebody selling you the power that you're using. Well, you pay depending on how much you use, but that's changing. You just heard, saw the nice Reddit graph. The CEO of a big utility using a Reddit graph tells you the power of Reddit. Yesterday, he used the graph. Not all energy are equal. When you use the energy from 3 to 6 p.m. in Arizona, that energy has a lot more value. It's the same electron. It's the same kilowatt hour. But what Arizona and APS is doing is maybe 5% off electric utilities in the U.S. But on the wholesale side, when you're selling power, you're producing power from wind, solar, nuclear, coal, gas, you also need the same thing. You cannot just say all kilowatt hour are produced and valued the same way. So we got capacity market. We need to have inertia market. We need to have flexibility market. There's like nine different markets we need. And I look at Terry, who was at PJM. PJM is still tweaking their capacity market that started 18 years ago. So now you're telling me you need six more different type of markets. So that's another question that we asked was, can markets work? Will markets be able to change to get us to this net zero goal? And the answer was surprising, but not that surprising. The way the market works today, it will not be able to deal with the needs for decarbonization, flexibility, inertia. That's a period there. So that doesn't say market won't work. That says market has to be fundamentally redesigned. So go to their pre-website. We have 66 programs, nuclear, CCUS, battery. One of the programs is market redesign. How do you do the market redesign? So let's now take a look at, let's say we have redesigned the market. We got the grid ready for EV. We got renewables coming in. We're at 2030. Some of us are playing golf. You're now in the workforce. And U.S. and other countries have reached that 50% goal. It's good to have ambitious goal. If we don't reach 50, we reach 45, great. But how do, what do we do for the other 50% that we got? And that's where the innovation comes in. So give your statistics. Um, 20, 22 years ago, 2020, 2000, 2000, go back 22 years ago. How much of the energy that we use in the world was fossil fuel? Give me a number. 80, 80%. That's a the great number. 80% was fossil fuel, 20% was clean. We have made so much progress in 22 years. And now you're in 2022. What percent of the world's energy is fossil fuel? Okay, somebody knows it. 80. Not to be pessimistic, but that's the reality. So what do you do with that? And that's where, you know, I call electricity electrons. They're hard to, I'm, I've been doubly. I still don't know how electrons flow. Gas and petroleum are molecules. That's why you need chemical engineering, chemistry. That's molecule. Those are fossil molecules. Came from fossil thousands of years ago. We have to figure out how to create those molecules in a clean way. How can clean... I mentioned if you get 600 gigawatt of wind and solar, there will be weeks when you will have double the electricity that you need in the United States. 
What are you going to do in those two weeks, six weeks with all that electricity coming in? So gas, natural gas is an energy carrier. Petroleum is an energy carrier. Well, what do you got in water? What is water made of? What are the two components in water? Somebody shout out. Some student shout out. I'm going to now get the students now. Student shout out. What is water made of? Hydrogen and oxygen. And you have heard that hydrogen is used in rocket. It's a powerful source of energy. I can use the electricity to split that hydrogen away from water. Then I've got a new source of molecule. That's a gaseous molecule. And then if you take that hydrogen, and what does air have? Nitrogen. If you can take the nitrogen out from air and mix, you got liquid ammonia. That's the liquid fuel. The maritime, the shipping industry is looking at liquid ammonia as their way to decarbonize by 2050. Australia is looking at using their huge solar resource to create hydrogen, hard to transport hydrogen in big ships, but convert it to liquid ammonia and ship it just like oil is shipped through oil tankers. So that's the amazing opportunity we have. There's so much work going on, so much money coming in on hydrogen that's just worldwide. And this is where on the left you see a small picture, advanced nuclear. Nuclear gets redefined as a source that is smaller, that can be built quicker, that can produce electricity. But when electricity is not needed because the wind and sun is out there strong, it's producing hydrogen. It's a perfect, flexible resource. And that's why there's so much interest in advanced nuclear. I'm actually going on Thursday to New York financial community, Guggenheim. They're hosting a seminar for financial investors on what's the reality with advanced nuclear. So this is the opportunity for innovation. These technologies most likely will not be happening this decade. At scale, they will happen in the 30s and the 40s. But the innovation to get these things done needs to be in this decade. So get your camera, phone out, put on camera. You got your phone, you got a camera. Good. Zoom on that QR code. You don't have to read it. Just go and save that page that you're going to read. So trying to grab you to EPRI, this is what EPRI does. We are a source of collaboration. Expertise, EPRI is not the only place where you have expertise. Universities have it, industry have it, manufacturers, GE, Strata Solar. There's expertise all over. But what we do is we bring in those expertise that works with our experts. And this is one of the largest initiatives in EPRI's history, Low Carbon Resource Initiative, LCRI. I call it, it's the initiative on how do you create, deliver, and use clean fuel using clean electricity. Some of you, you know, on the phenol gas turbines, last year, first time in the world, there were three gas turbines that were run on blended hydrogen. It was a big Mitsubishi, you know, heavy frame. There was a 10-year-old gas turbine that New York Power Authority uses. It was the LM6000 GE gas turbine. And we did one with Wisconsin Electric. It's a Warsella small recip, 18 megawatt. So imagine a future that the biggest source of electricity that we produce today is actually natural gas. That much natural gas we have, what are you going to do with it on a net zero future? Don't tell me it's going to go away. But what will go away may be that it's not natural gas. It starts with a combination of natural gas and hydrogen blending in the 20, 30, 35, 40 timeframe. And then it starts going into hydrogen gas turbine. Hydrogen is your next fossil fuel. Liquid ammonia is your next fossil fuel. So that's an exciting part of innovation. 
that most likely will not materialize this decade. You'll have small demos, but it will happen. So let's just pause and say, you know, we, Terry and I are somewhere else in 2050. I'm not sure, six feet under the ground, but many of you are still there. Let's say you guys were successful. You created hydrogen, liquid ammonia. In 2050, only 5% of energy we use in the world is fossil fuel. And that is negated by negative emission type technologies. So all good. We have been successful. Still, there's one more thing. Even if we are successful in getting to net zero, every year we are emitting CO2. That CO2 doesn't go any, but it's there. Our CO2 concentration is increasing. You know, some would say parts per million. It will continue to increase, even if we go to net zero, because every year it accumulates. So we are already seeing clearly the evidence that the weather is changing. Extreme events, one in a hundred year events are happening every year. I can go over example of example last five years, how many one in a hundred year events happened. And whether you believe in climate science or whether you believe climate has natural cycles, Regardless of the cause, the system, power system, the grid, the marvel of last century that we built was built based on the weather that we expect in the last century, in the 1950. We got to retool that grid and build a new grid that is ready for the weather of tomorrow. I do want to show you the IP. Anybody know who, what IPCC is? Give me a shout out what IPCC is. Intergovernmental panel, I call it, that's the brain trust of climate scientists and people and they produce report globally. So this is from last year. And if you look at it, if you look at the way it is, it looks at how successful are we in abating CO2. That means what, you know, you'll hear 1.5 degrees C. How much is the global warming? Well, 1.5 degrees C is our ambition. Reality is we may reach 1.5 degrees C by 2030. So we now need to look into two, two and a half, hopefully not three or four. As you see that, and I've just picked three things, heat wave, extreme rainstorm, and drought. So what happens in Chapel Hill area in terms of heat wave in 2050? What happens in this research triangle in terms of cold spells? What happens in this research triangle in terms of flood level so that the substations that you see when you drive by doesn't get flooded? That's exactly what happened in Houston, Hurricane Harvey. Major substations got flooded. They lost power for three days. They came back, spent a lot of money. The util electric utilities are great after a storm to figure out what was impacted and fix it. Well, imagine it's 2045. And imagine you are in Research Triangle and there's a Hurricane Harvey and your substation's flooded. But in 2045, you got maybe two cars that are electric. So you rely on electricity a lot more than you rely today. 2045, maybe your heating is not gas, is heat pump. You're relying more on electricity. If the power goes out for three to four days, will that result in this clean energy transition? And the answer is no. So we got to predict the weather of the future and start designing the grid for that weather. And that's where your iPhone comes in because you can take a scan of the QR code. And this is another cell of EPRI. Nowhere in the world you'll have an organization that has brought together more than 40 energy companies, but most importantly, have brought together 50 stakeholders, NOAA. They're the weather experts. They're the science experts. DOE National Labs. NARC, they're the reliability police. 
there are 40 stakeholders engaged with us, and all of this information is available for you on the web to create a consistent, transparent, and a detailed methodology on how do I predict 2040 weather in Research Triangle. There's a lot of uncertainty, but weather science, climate modeling is becoming much, much more improved now. So you're now actually using a climate tool, global climate model, there are several one of them, to predict what Research Triangle would look like in terms of heat wave, flooding, all the weather variables. Once you have done that modeling, then you look at, okay, the way we make, move, use electricity, the way we make, move, use energy, the way our coastal cities are built, how does that get impacted for the 2045 expected weather? And you're doing that now in 2022. And then you start thinking, okay, on the electric side, which is what we are focusing on, what do we need to do to get ready for that 2045? Not wait for the storm in 2045, but do it now. That's a big, major work. I mean, one of the things that we, at EPRI, the biggest benefit of EPRI for me is the people, not just EPRI people, but the stakeholders, the scientists at NOAA, others that are working. You're producing a body of work. This is our second, first year of this work. We need two more years. You will produce a body of work that the world will use to get ready for adaptation. Because even if we are successful, we will be successful in net zero decarbonization. Adaptation needs to start now. And this is an amazing opportunity for all of you students to look into what you want to do in the future. You can go on the technology track. You can go on the policy track. You can go on the climate science track. Because all these things, electricity will be the lifeblood. And I'm not saying that because we are Electric Power Research Institute. So with the time remaining, I'm going to throw out another question at you. What percent of electricity, what percent of energy that we use in the United, only students, what percent of energy that we use in the United States is electricity today? Because we use gas, we use gasoline in your car. What percent? Throw out a number. No wrong answer. 60. Anybody else? 30, 40. Well, the answer is 21. When did electricity start? That was before I was born even, 1880. So in 150 years, we went from 0% of energy that was used as electricity to 20% of energy that's used as electricity. Every modeling that has been done on how we decarbonize requires industries, transportation to electrify because electricity can be created in a clean way. And every expectation is by 2050. 40 to 45% of the total energy we use is going to be electricity, almost double the share of electricity percent. You can double that with the same grid that has been designed for the weather of the past. So that's why this is such an important aspect of what we need to do. I'm going to end up with the last time I'm going to ask you to have your phone up, take another QR code, and this time students only or anybody. Connect me in LinkedIn, send me a resume. I told you why I'm here. <laughs> well, I appreciate all of you. There is five minutes remaining, but I think we have, you have, I'm just warming it up for a speaker that came from London and I think landed this morning. So last night late. So you got to be, so I'm just warming it up for her. I appreciate you taking the time all the way to fly from London, but really this important opportunity we have for the society. Because I, I was born in Bangladesh, 
That's where I did my undergraduate. One of the countries that will be most affected by sea level rise. So if we don't start working now, we don't have a chance to make sure those coastal cities are safe. And work is not just talk. Work is show progress. Show that by 2030, U.S. has reduced the carbon emission by 50%. Show that we are still not using 80% of our energy as fossil fuel. Because if we don't do that, then not just Bangladesh, there will be a lot of countries that will suffer. But the poor countries will suffer or the developing countries will suffer more than we will in the U.S. So if you look at the work that you're doing, the work that you will do, the work that electricity sector doing, the work that Stratasolar is doing, the work that EPRI is doing, you are not just shaping the future of energy. In a way, you are shaping the future of humanity. Because if we don't address this challenge and just say that, hey, we don't have to worry about it. Yeah, it's a little bit cold today. Yeah, this yearly events happen every year. It's just a, you know, it's a cold year. And if we continue to do that, there is a preponderance evidence of science that clearly shows that we got to address this challenge. And all of you are the future climate engineer. You're the future policy, environmental policy, environmental science that will lead us to this end goal, which is we will have an energy system that is ready for the weather of the future. And we have an energy system that has reached a net zero future. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that is the end of this conversation, but it doesn't have to be the end of our conversation together because I'd really love to know what stands out to you of the many insightful ways that Arshad wowed us both with statistics and shock and awe. I mean, 600 million people in the world without access to equitable food distribution, 740 million people working in the food industry who are also in poverty. (laughs) You see, any way you slice it, our energy and our food and our water are intertwined. I'm grateful for the work that EPRI is doing to help everyone have equitable access to energy around the world and to help us get off of fossil fuels by focusing on ways that we can sustainably increase our use of electricity and generation of electricity while reducing our reliance not only on fossil fuels, but on the other areas of our life that do contribute to greenhouse gases like our meat consumption. What did you take away from the conversation with Arshad? I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you would reach out to us on LinkedIn, I know that Arshad is eager to see if you have any feedback or what insights stuck out for you. Of course, we'll be linking to Arshad's LinkedIn so that you can connect with him over in the show notes at mysuncast.com. You just click on episodes, notes, and that'll take you right to the show notes. If it's been a while since this episode aired, of course, then when you go to mysuncast.com, you'll need to scroll all the way down to the bottom and click in the search box and type in Arshad or E-P-R-I. Either way, you'll find it. I hope that you'll tune in next week as we will feature yet again another short-form tactical practical episode on Tuesday and a long-form deep dive with an industry expert just like Arshad 
And I hope that you are already subscribed to the show so you'll be notified when the next episode drops. If you'd like me to notify you, then when you get to mysuncast.com, just scroll down until one of our pop-ups jumps in your face and says, please subscribe to our newsletter. That'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice-weekly content just like this. I'd like to take a moment here and thank our wonderful sponsors. They help make sure this content reaches you each and every week for free. You know what it costs you is your attention, and that definitely has value. So thank you for giving us your attention today. You can learn more about our sponsors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And of course, that's also how you could learn ways that you could partner to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. For now, remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.